Good morning. I hope that you have had a good night. I imagine it was short for some of you if you went to Little Rock last night. Congratulations to the Yellow Jacket football team and their coaches for a wonderful, wonderful season. And uh, it is neat to be part of a community, too, that comes out and supports them. And uh, it was neat to see all the pictures and different things that people put up. But I do recognize that some of you may be drowsy. And if that's the case, I hope nobody um, is disturbed if, if there's heavy breathing or snoring or something during the sermon. It's understandable. Well, we have been studying for several weeks a series called Defining Moments, those moments in life where God speaks and we have to respond to Him. The title of this morning's message is The Critical Decision Within the Defining Moment. There's a decision that you can make now or during that defining moment, but it's a decision everyone has to make if you're going to go forward with God, and we want to explore that today. It is the Christmas season. I got to spend a couple days this past week in New Orleans rebooting uh, a doctoral program that I started before I came to win and set it down and now have resurrected it again. So, um, so I got to be down that part of the world. And so uh, seen on a restaurant in Houma, Louisiana was, was a story about Thibodeau who bought Boudreaux a parrot for Christmas. Now you know about du- Thibodeau and Boudreaux, don't you? Thibodeau bought Boudreaux a parrot for Christmas and after about a week or so, Thibodeau called Boudreaux up and he said, Como se va, mon ami, how's that parrot I bought you? And Thibodeau said, oh, that parrot was fine. He was really good. I cooked him up good. And Thibodeau said, what? I paid a lot of money for that parrot. He could speak three different languages. And Boudreaux said, well, you should have said something. And, um, and, you know, we, uh, we wonder sometimes, does God really speak? Does he really speak to me? And he does. He does. And he has a plan for each of us. And we need to be very, very careful to watch for those defining moments. Listen for those defining moments. And as we explore that today, we're going to look at a, at a man who's mentioned in Hebrews 11 by the name of Enoch. Enoch's story begins in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 5. He was the first man after Adam and Eve who is described as walking with God. He rediscovered something precious that was lost in the Garden of Eden. And we read in verse 5, Hebrews 11, By faith Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to place him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Enoch is something of a mystery man in God's word. Aside from this passage in Hebrews 11, he's only referred to in detail in two other passages. One of those is in Genesis 5, and you may want to put your finger there. Genesis 5, Hebrews 11, and then there's another reference to him in the book of Jude. And we're going to look at all three of those uh, today. He stands out in Genesis 5 because what is said about him is so different from all of the other descriptions in the chapter. For example, it's it's a genealogy, and it's describing each man, his firstborn, 
and how long he lived. And, and for example, in verse 3 of Genesis 5, it says, And Adam lived 130 years, and begot a son in his own likeness after his image, and named him Seth. After he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years, and he had sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. And that formula is repeated throughout the entire chapter. It's re- repeated for a man named uh, Enosh, the son of Seth, Canaan, Mahalel, Jared in verse 20, Methuselah in verse 27. So all the days of so-and-so were so many years, and then it says, and he died. But Enoch's different. Listen to what it says about him in verse 21. Enoch lived 65 years and begot Methuselah. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years. He didn't just live. It says Enoch walked with God 300 years and had sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years, and Enoch walked with God and was not, he was not, for God took him. It doesn't say he died, does it? It says that God took him. He never died. And he's so different from the others described in the chapter. Now, why didn't he die? We have to go back to Hebrews 11 for that. In verse 5, it says, by faith, Enoch was taken away. At the end of verse 5, it says that he pleased God. That was the testimony concerning him. He was taken away by faith, and the testimony concerning him was that he pleased God. There was something about his relationship to God that of all the people who had lived up to that point in time, God said, this man's not going to die. He's never going to see death. He's just going to come home. Now, in this passage of Scripture in Hebrews, everybody else that we've looked at so far had a defining moment where by faith they did something. By faith, Noah built an ark. We saw that. By faith, Abraham obeyed. By faith, Moses kept the Passover. But it doesn't say what Enoch did. It's passive. By faith, he was taken away. It doesn't tell us what he did. And so God did something. And if we're going to understand the relationship between Enoch and God, we're going to have to dig a little deeper to understand what Enoch was trusting God for and what his defining moment was about. Now, by way of review, I want to define a defining moment. What is a defining moment? Here it is. A defining moment determines whether you will experience or miss God's plan for your life. The defining moment is when God speaks to you You recognize that God is speaking, and you have to decide, am I going to trust God and do what he is telling me to do or not? A defining moment. And God has a plan for you. And listen, if you don't trust God, if you say no to God when that moment comes, the losses are real. And we've seen that already. Well, what was Enoch's defining moment? moment. Well, we see it in Genesis 5 in the description. You may have seen it as we read it, but listen again. Enoch lived 65 years, and he begot Methuselah. Now, up to this point, he reads just like everybody else. And then it says, after he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God. Something changed. After he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years, and he had sons and daughters. Enoch's defining moment came when he was 65 years old. Up to this moment, he was no different than everybody else. He was just like all his cousins, 
At that time, they were all cousins. He was no different. But something happened when he was 65 with the birth of a son that changed everything. And this change in his life was so profound that the writer of Hebrews 11 said, this man, Enoch, is such an example of faith, such an illustration of faith, that people for all time need to know about Enoch. And he dropped Enoch in his story in Hebrews 11. Now what happened to cause Enoch to change so dramatically when he was 65 years old? We get some clues from Jude. And Jude refers, there's, there's no chapter in Jude, there's just verses. So in Jude, verses 14 and 15, we have our third reference to Enoch. We got some clues there about what happened to Enoch. Verse 14, now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, and Jude wants to make sure you know that, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, I'm telling you, there's some clues in that passage about what happened to Enoch. His defining moment, the change that occurred in him, There are a couple things we see here. First, his relationship to Adam was really significant. He's described by Jude as the seventh from Adam. He was descended from the line of Seth. But there was another line, the line of Cain, described in Genesis 4. And the man who was third in that line, in fact, he was Cain's son, the grandson of Adam, was also named Enoch. A city was named after him, and all his descendants were pretty bad people, they, they were not great people, and they all got destroyed in the flood. And so Enoch, the third from Adam, is very different from Enoch, the seventh from Adam. I think that Jude is pointing out something else to us very significant. It's the seventh from Adam. If you take the Bible literally, as the seventh generation from Adam, Adam would have been 622 years old when Enoch was born, just a young man. Which means, if you do the math, that for over 300 years, Adam and Enoch had the opportunity to know each other. And so the things that happened in the garden, Enoch would have had access to that information. And Adam knew about walking with God. You see, the first reference to walking with God occurs in Genesis 3.8. The Bible says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. You know what Adam told Enoch? He said, We used to walk with God, son. We used to walk with God in the garden. In the evening, the breezes would stir up and they would come blowing up in the garden and God would come, the one who made the universe. And we would have intimacy with an infinite God, the one who made everything. And he would walk with us and he would say, I want to know your heart and I want you to know my heart. And we walked together. And then he told Enoch, 
Enoch, we messed all that up. We sinned. We disobeyed God, and we lost that walk. We lost that fellowship. And when God came, we hid. And you all know something about that. When you've done something to hurt someone, and you see them down the aisle in the store, you go on the other aisle, you hope they didn't see you. You want to hide. You don't want to interact with them. And that's what was happening here. And that's what happens to you and to me when sin enters into our relationship. It divides us and separates us from God. It causes us to want to hide from God. And listen, when you do that, you're always going to walk alone. Always. And you really only have two options. You can walk with God who knows everything about you and who loves you, or you can walk by yourself. And you say, well, I'm married. My wife or my husband, they know who I am. I have good friends. They know who I am. Not the way God does. And if you want to, you don't have to tell your friends much. You don't have to tell your spouse much, and you can walk alone. But you never walk alone when you walk with God. And they hid from him. So Adam told Enoch for 65 years, the first 65 years of his life, Adam told Enoch, Enoch, listen to me, son, walk with God. Walk with God. Walk with God. Walk with God. And I imagine he told that to Enoch's dad and his granddad and every generation between him and Enoch, but he told him, walk with God. So Jude highlights the connection with Adam, but there's something else he tells us. He also tells us what Enoch preached. And his preaching are two sides of the same coin. First of all, his preaching tells us what disturbed him most about his cousins, his generation that he lived in. It tells us what disturbed him the most, and on the other hand, it tells him because this disturbed him what he treasured the most. And you saw it when I read it. You heard it when I read it. What, what disturbed him the most? But it disturbed him that this was an ungodly generation. Four times he uses the word ungodly to describe what he saw and is preaching to them. God, there's a judgment coming. And friends, family, he says, look, what you are doing is ungodly. You are ungodly. You're offending God with your ungodly ways and so forth. Now, you know something about this word ungodly if you've been here a while because this word ungodly is, is really a neat word. Sebomai is a, is a root word that means to stand before someone like God or before someone who's important, Sebomai, to stand. It also means to shrink back. But you can imagine someone really important, someone you're worshiping, someone you're in awe of, you might shrink back from them. And just like in English, when you want to negate what something means, you put ah on the front of it. And ah, sabaya, ah, sebomai is the negation of that, just the opposite of that. And so what was he saying to his cousins, to his generation? You know, he couldn't have been very popular at family gatherings. Y'all are ungodly. <laughs> Try that at Christmas. See what it gets you. What was he saying to them? He's saying, you people don't know the fact that God exists, and if God exists, there's a way that you're supposed to stand before him. You should shrink back before him. You are ungodly in all your ways, in all your thoughts, in everything that you are. What does that tell you he treasured? It, what he treasured most was his sense of the presence of God, the fact that God exists. It defined his life. I think we're beginning to see what Enoch's defining moment had to do with. Some, something happened when he was 65 that caused him to come to terms with the presence of God as a reality and not as an idea or a theological issue. 
up to age 65, he lived like all of his cousins. He didn't believe that God existed. He did what he wanted, when he wanted. But when his son was born, everything changed. Everything changed. And maybe you've had that experience where you've had a son, a daughter, a grandchild, and everything changes, and you begin to ask questions, the larger questions of life. And I, I believe that happened to him 65 years without God. But now he's thinking, what kind of a dad am I going to be? What kind of a father am I going to be? What am I going to pass down to the next generation? I know what was passed down to me. Something clicked in Enoch, and it all came together. What Adam had told him, what he had sensed in his heart, what he looked at when he saw that little baby boy named Methuselah. God became real in his life. And at that moment... When God became real, he made a critical decision in his heart that prepared him for everything else that would come in his life. The defining moments and the ordinary moments, he made a critical decision. So we see in Enoch that before there's a defining moment, or even in the very midst of that defining moment, there's this critical decision that takes place before we even trust God. Now before we look at what that decision is and what it looks like, I want to illustrate it for you in this way. Before the service started, I uh, encountered three wives, not three wise men, three wives in the church, and I showed them this. Go ahead and pull it up on the screen. I showed them four categories of gifts that their husband might buy them for Christmas if their husband had all the money in the world and wasn't worried about expense. And I asked them, wife, choose from these categories what will your husband, uh, I, I just said, what would you really like if your husband had all the money and, and he could pick for you? Choose one of these four categories. And they all made a choice. So I'd like to call their husbands up here for just a moment. <laughs> I'd like to ask Phil Black to come up here. Phil, okay, if you come up here. Who else do I got? Um, Russell Williams. Russell Williams, come on down. Rusty McLean, come on down. Come on down. Just, that's it, guys. The rest of you can relax. Okay? Come on down. All right? Okay, I'm going to let Phil go first. You gentlemen, join Phil. All right? Phil, go ahead and look at that screen. Look at it carefully. Four categories of gifts. Which category, if you had all the money in the world, could, could buy that for Kathy? What do you think she would choose? What do you think she chose? You are very good. Congratulations. You're right. Very good. I'll, I'll give you that as a reminder to you. Go ahead and hand that mic to Russell. Russell, looking at that screen, if you had all the money in the world, what would Susan have chosen? No, sir. No, sir. She chose a car. And I'm going to give you that as a reminder for your shopping list. And would you give that mic to Rusty? Rusty, last but not least, what did Dina choose? If you had all the money in the world and you could buy something for her, what did she choose? Jewelry. No, sir. <laughs> she chose a vacation. <laughs> Thank you, men, very much. <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, well, I tell you what this does illustrate. Aside from the fact that all men need help at Christmas time. <laughs> what was each man trying to do? Ultimately, he was trying to anticipate what he, his wife wanted so he could 
So he could what? So he could please his wife, right? He wanted to please his wife. That is a picture of the critical decision you and I have to make if at no other time, at least in that defining moment. And it breaks down this way. Here it is. With every defining moment, there's really two questions, a decision that has to be made. Here's the first one. Do I exist to please him? Or does he exist to please me? Do I exist to please him or does he exist to please me? This is the critical decision. You will never know him in his fullness. You will never experience all that God has for you so long as you walk with the attitude that God exists to please me. And Enoch got it. The testimony about him from God was that he pleased God. And he understood. And it says that after that moment, when that critical moment happened in his life where he made that decision, it says he walked with God 300 years. You know, to walk with God for 300 years means you've got to walk for, for every year of those 300 years. And to walk with God for an entire year means you've got to walk with God every day of that year, 365 days. And to walk with God for a day means you've got to walk with God in each moment of that day. And Enoch is a picture of that. He, he illustrates that for us. It says he walked with God every day for 300 years. How is it possible to walk with God, set your heart in such a way that your heart is to please God. How is it possible to do that consistently for 300 years? I want to suggest to you from Hebrews 11 that it involves two vital convictions that must become disciplines in your life and mine. Here's the statement. What a God-pleaser does every day in order to walk with God. What a God-pleaser does when you've set your heart, what is it that you do to maintain that walk on your end? And i got to say that only the grace of God can sustain someone like Enoch for 300 years in doing this. But he was doing it. The writer of Hebrews tells us that the first discipline was the discipline of discerning his presence. Discerning his presence. In the middle of Hebrews 6 it says, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, that he exists. Understanding that he's here, not just with my head, but with my heart. And anticipating and acting like God is present, knowing he is present, and then letting my life be governed by his presence. What a change, what a transformation that makes in a conversation where you're having a disagreement with someone. What a difference that makes when you're sitting in a business or at school and you've got a decision to make where you can turn and respond to the presence of God. Not everyone believes in the presence or the existence of God. Recently, a billboard has been put up all across the South. It says, Dear Santa... All I want for Christmas is to skip church. I'm too old for fairy tales. They put this up in Memphis. They put it up in Fort Smith. They put it up in Nashville. They put it up in St. Louis. I've got problems with this. 
First, it indicates a growing hostility in our culture towards people of faith. People like Bill Mayer, entertainers, theoretical physicist Stephen Hawking, British professor Richard Dawkins, and others represent a new form of militant atheism that is becoming increasingly popular. They will look at you. They will call you names. They will ridicule you, calling you everything in the book. But you know what? God has a name for a person that doesn't believe he exists. That name is fool. The word the Bible uses is fool. In Psalm 14, verse 1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And while people in academic circles and people who claim to be intelligent, who, who are the ones most likely to embrace the conviction that there is no God, God says, you're not so smart. You're a fool. There's a hostility. It's also a growing threat to our freedom. I don't believe it's an accident that they used a little child in these ads. I want to tell you something you may find hard to believe, but I believe the day is coming when there are people who teach children the Word of God as truth will be accused of some form of child abuse. Just by teaching them biblical truth, the accusation will come. It will be criminalized to teach a child that the Bible is true. Do you want to know God? Do you want to know God the way Enoch did? Are you, are you wanting more than just coming to church, more than just facts about God, more than just books about God? Do you want to experience Him? In 1614, a man named Nicholas Herman was born. He was poor, had no way of supporting himself, and so to make ends meet, he entered the army. He was born in France. He fought in the Thirty Years' War. He was injured. He was discharged. And he became very serious about his relationship to God, had a dramatic encounter with God, and entered a monastic environment, an order, a religious order called the Order of the Discalced Carmelites. Their initials are OCD. I thought that was cool. And he became a cook in their kitchen, and he lived a life of intimacy with God Always in the presence of this busy life in the kitchen, he walked with God. After he died, they collected letters he wrote of counsel that he gave to people about walking with God into a little book called Practicing the Presence of God. It's a little book, easy to read. You know, the world divides reality in the sacred space and secular space. This is sacred here, out there is secular. Brother Lawrence didn't do that, that's what he was called. He said, men invent means and methods of coming at God's love. They learn rules and set up devices to remind them of that love. And it seems like a world of trouble to bring oneself into the consciousness of God's presence. Yet it might be so simple. Is it not quicker and easier just to do our common business wholly for the love of him? He maintained an inner conversation with God. And I've I've talked with you about that from this pulpit, the discipline, the practice of talking with God, interacting with God, wherever you are, not just in your time alone with God, but throughout your day and your other conversations with people, being able to turn to Him and talk to Him. Listen to Brother Lawrence. Nor is it needful that we should have great things to do. We can do little things for God. I turned the cake that is frying on the pan 
for love of Him. And that done, if there's nothing else to call me, I prostrate myself in worship before Him in the kitchen to Him who has given me grace to work. Afterwards, I rise happier than a king. It is enough for me to pick up but a straw from the ground for the love of God. He said, the time of business does not with me differ from the time of prayer. You get the full impact of that statement? Business, prayer, no difference. Prayer time, quiet time, time alone with God, business, busy in the kitchen, no difference. And in the noise and clatter of my kitchen, while several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God in as great tranquility as if I were upon my knees. Isn't that cool? It's the way we're called to live. Now, to live that way, to live with the discipline of discerning the presence of God, it is that. It is a discipline. It's something you and I cultivate. It doesn't come naturally. You and I have to determine that, all right, today I'm going to walk with the Lord and I want to interact with Him. And so when things come up through the day, I want to turn to Him in my heart and talk to Him about decisions, talk to Him about people who come to me and are talking to me about their problems. Lord, how do you want me to respond to this person? What do you want me to say? Where do you want me to go from here? Brother Lawrence said, as often as I could, I placed myself as a worshiper before Him. He's talking about throughout His day. Fixing my mind upon His holy presence recalling it when I found it wandering from him. Does your mind ever wander? Maybe wandering right now. This proved to be an exercise frequently painful, yet I persisted through all the difficulties. So it was a discipline, even for Brother Lawrence, who wrote this marvelous little book, to practice the presence of God 24-7. So God pleases develop a discipline of discerning his presence. They must believe that he exists. There's a second discipline, the discipline of seeking Him. And we see that in the last part of verse 6. Not only must they believe that He exists, it says, and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Look at that word seek first. The word seek, in fact, in the New King James, it's up there, it says diligently. The word diligently is not in the original text. It's all captured by the word seek. The word seek there is describing someone who's looking for something that's hidden. And when you're looking for something that's hidden, you've got to work at it, don't you? You ever play hide and seek when you were a kid? I mean, you had to work to find that person. And, um, and it took time. Now, the effort required to seek him diligently is not because God doesn't want to be found. It's not because God plays hard to get. It's because the very act of seeking transforms you and me. It changes us. It gives focus to our thoughts, focus to our life when I have to seek Him like that. I can't prove the existence of God to you, but I believe that God, I know that God wants to prove Himself to you. I can't prove that He exists, but He wants to prove Himself to you. The Bible says He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. That word rewarder means to compensate someone for what they've done, to compensate something for what they've earned. And you say, well, I thought we believed in grace. Yes, but we're talking about a relationship with God. And he's saying that the person who's serious about seeking him, he will reward them. If you're diligently seeking him, what's the reward? Him. It is his nature to respond to you when you reach out to Him. 
It is his desire to have fellowship with you and to know you. He wants to have fellowship with you. If he wanted just obedience from you, he had the angels already. And they would obey everything that he says, and they're smarter and faster and stronger than we are. And the angels could obey him if all he wanted was obedience. If he wanted Bible experts, he could have done that. He could have taken Jesus and made him a scholar and sent him to all the higher institutions of learning and education in the first century Roman world. But he didn't do that, did he? He sent Jesus to a stable in an out-of-the-way place called Bethlehem and then sent the announcement through the poorest people in the land, the shepherds. Obedience is not what he's seeking. Bible expertise is not what he's seeking. What he wants most from you and me is our heart and our fellowship with him. The Bible tells us this in Jeremiah 29, 13. He says, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. This is God speaking through the prophet. In Matthew 7, 7, Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. What's he saying? Seek me. Be persistent to me. God wants to walk with you. He wants to be with you. He wants you to know him. Why did he create you? He created you in his image so that you could have fellowship with him. He doesn't want you to know about him. Not just from me, not just from a Sunday school teacher. He wants each of you here sitting here in this room, he wants each of you to know him firsthand in person. So brother or sister, are you walking with him? Are you walking with him? By faith, Enoch was taken. But we now know that something far more profound had happened in Enoch's life, that this walk of faith that began for him when his son was born involved a fundamental decision so that at the end of his life it was said of him that he pleased God. He made that decision. It's not about me. Age 65, it's not about me. It's all about him. It's all about what he wants to do, what he wants to accomplish in my life. It's not about him pleasing me. You are here on this earth for a short while, and you are here for him. Everything you need, he has provided. He sent Jesus to die for you. He sent his Holy Spirit to come live inside you. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, he wants to have fellowship with you too, not just with church members, not just with people who have already trusted Christ, but even you, if you don't know Christ, he wants to have fellowship with you. He sent Jesus to die for you. You may say, well, I'm too unworthy. Pastor, if you knew what I was like, if you knew the way I talked, if you knew the way I acted, if you knew what I was like at home or at school or my workplace, I'm too unworthy for God. And yet Jesus died on the cross and did everything necessary so that you could come to him. And you might say, well, I'm, I'm too old. It's too late for me. I don't know if you've noticed, but in this study, every person we've talked about has been a senior adult. <laughs> a senior adult when God called them. A senior adult when God used Moses to lead the people out of Egypt. A senior adult when Abraham had a baby. A senior adult when Enoch became a daddy and he walked with God for the rest of his life. You're not too old. You may think, well, it's too late. Don, it's just too late for me. I made my decision a long time ago, and I'm not 
I'm not the kind of person that God wants. It's just too late for me. Listen, Jesus is calling you. He calls you. He says over and over again in the Gospels, whosoever will may come. The Bible message of John 3.16 that we learn as little kids in, a, in church, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, 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 whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. It's not too late. It's not too late. You're not too old. You're not too unworthy. And this morning, if you want to trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, right now, in just a moment, we're going to stand and sing. This is our response time. It's part of our worship. But I want to encourage you, if you've never trusted Christ, to come out of the balcony, to slip out of the pew, to come forward. There'll be pastors standing here at the front. You'll say, well, I don't know what to say. Just come and say, Jesus has called me. I want to be saved. I want to be saved. And they'll share scripture with you. They'll, they'll turn to passages like John 3.16. You can see it. You can read it for yourself. Please don't take our word for it. They'll share the scripture with you. And this morning, like Enoch, you can come to that defining moment. You can recognize that God has said, this is how your life can change. This is how I want to save you. This is what I've done for you. And you can have that defining moment. And just like Enoch, you can say, it's not about me. It's about you. I believe in you. I trust you. Save me. And for the rest of your life, you can walk with God. He's calling. And then, brother, sister, I don't know how you need to respond. You may just need to, when the rest of us stand and sing, you may just need to remain in your seat. And just bow your head. And can I challenge you this week to just set your heart and say, Lord, I want to do that. I want to be like Brother Lawrence. I want to, I want to be a person who has an inner conversation with you 24-7. I want to go to bed talking to you as I go to sleep. I want to get up in the morning talking to you as I wake up. I want to drive down the road and talk to you. I want to ride the tractor and talk to you. I want to go to my classroom and talk to you. Wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, dear God, I want to recognize your presence. I want to seek you. You know, that's what you were made for. I'm thankful that if you're a member at Wind Baptist Church, I'm thankful that you're a member here, but God made you for more than membership at Wind Baptist Church. If you serve here as a Sunday school teacher, as a deacon, I'm glad that you do that and may your tribe increase, but God made you for more, for more than that. And if you're a, you're a person who has dedicated your life to serving Him, I am delighted with that, but God made you for more than your service, more than your obedience, more than those things. He made you for Himself. And your first order, your first assignment, your first privilege is to walk with God. And brother, sister, would you choose that today? Let me ask you to bow your head and to close your eyes. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll have our time of response. There'll be pastors here at the front. The altar is open. You can pray in your seat. You can come pray with these, these pastors. You can come pray at these steps. But would you let this time be a time of worship where you open your heart up to the Lord and say, God, what are you saying to me? Or maybe you already know, and this is a defining moment for you. Would you act as he leads? Our Father and our God, thank you for Enoch. Thank you for this precious man of God who loved you with all his heart and who made that critical decision that for the rest of his life it would be about him pleasing you. And I want to be like that, Lord, and I know I stand with others that want to be like that. 
It's not about us. It's not about our, our wants, our needs, our desires, and our dreams, but it's about pleasing you. And in doing that, we find what we were made for. We find that abundant life that you have promised. We find that life without limits. We find that life where, that is greater than anything we ever dreamed or anything we ever imagined. When we determine in our heart that we're going to please you, and not ourselves. Father, I pray today for that person who's wrestling with this very decision. Would you set them free? Holy Spirit, would you set that person free? Father, whatever hinders them, whatever lies the enemy may have told them, I pray that the truth would shine brightly in their heart right now. It's not too late. They're not unworthy. They're not too old. And this is their defining moment. Father, as we respond to you, Holy Spirit, lead us, guide us. As we worship you in obedience now, listening, responding, saying yes, in Jesus' name, amen.